we as humans will always do what is right after exhausting every other option. (laughs) I'm Jane Z, and this is Farm to Future, the podcast all about eating better for the planet. All right, friends, today we are getting real. On the show so far, we've had our fair share of pie-in-the-sky ideas and startups that are doing great work on the ground in their communities. I wanted to bring in someone who could give us a bird's-eye view of food innovation as a whole, what are some of the trends we should be paying attention to, and some of the realities on the policy end. For example, I learned from Chef Tim West that 90% of our farm subsidies in the U.S. go to commodity crops like corn, soy, and wheat, which we mainly consume in the form of ultra-processed foods. Only 1% of subsidies go to fruits and vegetables. That's right, 1%. Isn't that crazy? And the even crazier part is who is keeping these subsidies so low? And I'm going to tell you, it is not who you expect, so stay tuned for that. Chef Tim West came to me highly recommended by my friend Elaine, and Tim is somewhat of a rock star in the future of food world. He's a chef by training, and he discovered the slow food movement after getting sick from fast food. He cut his teeth in the kitchens of New York and was recruited to open Cafe 6 at the Facebook headquarters. That's where he discovered hackathons, and since then he's hosted food hackathons and also invests in food entrepreneurs through his nonprofit Sundial Foundation. Today, Tim shares how he thinks about the different innovations happening in the industry, some examples of truly regenerative and scalable companies that he's backing, and why he thinks that the innovation we need now is actually in accounting. If you're new to the show, welcome, and be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen for more in-depth interviews like this. You can find me, Jane Z, on Instagram at farm.to.future. All right, enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Tim. Thank you so much for having me, Jane. It's a pleasure to be here. We've had some folks on the podcast talk about regenerative agriculture. We actually just had Joel Salatin. And I think you add a really interesting layer on the tech side and the money side and, you know, practically how do we get this stuff done and what are some examples we can look to. I would love to start off with your background when it comes to food and farming, because you've gone through culinary school and the slow food movement, and then you've circled into the tech world. Yeah, sure. You know, I'm a chef by training. I pose and can swim in the worlds of tech and finance, but by no means would ever claim to be a guru of the sort. My background originated from growing up near farms in the upstate New York area and then deciding to go to culinary school after getting food poisoning in my freshman year of college. And it was there I discovered the worlds of slow food, you know, kind of the opposite of what had gotten me sick in the fast food world and began a a lifetime kind of career of really being a student of our food system. So for many years, I just kind of read about our food system, how it got to where it is now, kind of post green revolution and the processed food that kind of predominates. And then just thinking about more slow food oriented roots around permaculture and, and building soil health and so forth. So I've made it my kind of life's mission, how to feed as many people as sustainably or in best case, regeneratively as possible, and how to transform and shift some of the incentive structures 
around our current extractive food system. And at least in my case, how do I create space for others to help create new solutions and innovations? I, I got out of the kitchen about 10 years ago and started food hackathons with some friends in the San Francisco Bay Area as a way to build out this entrepreneurial ecosystem and encourage people to work on what I'd consider one of the most important challenges in the world, which is building a better food system. So here we are. Um, and fun backstory for <laughs> for listeners is your grandfather was actually the inventor of Doritos, right? Yeah, it was one of those kind of family lores and stories. Uh, of course, everybody knows the product. In fact, it, there's a book called The Dorito Effect, it talks about how Doritos was one of the first, if not the first, major breakout food product, in part because they had found this quote-unquote bliss point, that perfect combination of salt, fat, and sugar, which makes it irresistible. And it became a, a financial success. So a lot of the food industry began to mimic and model that kind of business model. And that, in large part, gave rise to the processed food movement and moved us away from maybe slow food origins that our grandparents might have had. So now it's an honor and pleasure to help kind of guide us back to uh, a place of regeneration. So in your work today, you work with companies big and small. And I'm curious as to your thoughts on what is the role of big corporations? Because there's often this idea that we need to divest from Monsanto, divest from Nestle, divest from the big corps, but they have entrenched interests in the industry. What do you think their role is in this shift? You know, I think for many years, my younger self would have had a different answer than it does now. But the long story short is I think if we're ever going to get to a place where our food system is going to shift for the better, we really need everybody at the table. And that was part of the energy of creating the food hackathons. And I had discovered the hackathon model while cooking at Facebook a decade ago. So I felt really inspired by the ability to get everybody in the room together over a weekend for this sort of rapid innovation and prototyping sprint. Didn't matter if you are a doctor or a lawyer or a PhD or somebody in a big corporate or a student in school. We really just wanted to give everybody an opportunity to come together arm in arm, present ideas and work towards solutions and technologies that innovate and improve the food system. So we were very fortunate, actually, that the first year we ever did this, 2012, there was uh, this woman, Stephanie Jelly, who had come from Nestle and helped to create this innovation outpost in Silicon Valley. And at first I said, you know, why are you here? And she says, you know, I'm one of the good guys on the inside and, and we really want to mm -hmm. change. And I've become to realize over the years that these big corporates, they're cruise ships and they know they're headed towards icebergs and they have to work with the speedboats to help navigate those waters and bring everybody aboard towards a, a healthier, safer place. We are at this really interesting turning point in history where with the advent of things like social media, you have to be more transparent. The companies know that. They know they have to change and grow. And, and I think the big hot button word that I, I'd want to throw out there that we're moving towards is around true cost accountability. And mm. that's the kind of idea that for many, many years and, and still at play right now, and particularly in, in public facing companies, they are externalizing the costs 
onto society and the environment. And they're not accounting for their carbon emissions. They're not accounting for all, all of the costs to public health of, for instance, sugary beverages, all while making profits on paper. And it's an oversimplified version of accounting that is not serving us. So if we mm -hmm. want to avoid the icebergs, we all have to collectively decide that we need actually a, a more holistic approach to accounting. Yeah. Can you say more about that? What does true cost accounting, you know, actually account for? And how popular is that a concept in practice? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example, right? So if you are a candy factory and your candy factory is on a river and you have some type of byproduct that is going to cost you, say, a million dollars to get rid of safely. But if you just dump it in the river, it only costs you a $100,000 fine. So instead mm. of paying the million dollars to get rid of this or do the right thing, in, in the case of a public company, the CEO, the board, must legally make decisions that benefit the shareholders' financial interests above mm. the, say, potential of killing life in the watershed. So the same thing goes for farming companies that are spraying pesticides on their farms. They're just trying to make as much food as possible and, and as much profit as possible, but they might be contaminating the water supplies. They may even be contaminating the water supplies downstream for other people. And they just budget into their budgets the fines. So they're not accounted uh -huh. for properly the damage that that does to the environment or to others in the society. That's what I mean by we have to actually have uh, true cost accounting is if you were to say, you know, for instance, sugary beverages, this is a, close to my heart because my father works in, in water for the Drinking Water Research Foundation, where they, they look at the cost to society of sugary beverages, whereas diabetes, heart disease, obesity are all these byproducts that come from eating too much sugar or drinking too many sugary beverages. But the corporates aren't paying for that cost to society uh, of all of the health problems that come down the line. So Drinking Water Research Foundation, they look at the baseline. So what is the cost or benefit of drinking water versus sugary beverages? So at least mm -hmm. now we have an idea of the delta between the sugary beverage cost and the water cost. And you can actually say that because these corporates are deploying these practices or these products, it is costing society, uh, the environment, X amount. And if we can actually incorporate that into our projections and balance sheets, it may actually rise the price of things like soda, which would make hmm. water a more viable alternative and shift the, the consumption patterns. It reminds me of, don't quote me on the details, but at a certain point in Mexico, Coca-Cola was cheaper than water yeah. because Vicente Fox, who was president of Mexico, had some personal tie to Coca-Cola. I think he had worked there previously. And so I'm not sure how much you work with politicians or with policy, but it sounds like a lot of these incentive changes need to come from policy. Would you agree with that? Or do you think there's other kind of like public pressure we can put on companies? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, consumers have power uh, and it's only powerful if they exercise it. So let's not lose sight of that. But you're right. Part of the problem that exists is that these corporates, for instance, let's say McDonald's, right? McDonald's 
has a tremendous amount of money because of all these profits they're making because they're externalizing their costs by, for instance, keeping their employees as part-time so they don't have to pay benefits. So now that mm, right. cost of somebody being working poor and now being on food stamps or you know needing public benefits like health care is paid by taxpayers. But McDonald's has lobbyists who help write the, the bills, the laws, that keep them one step ahead and have all of these loopholes that enable them to get away with that type of what I would call malpractice or just unfair advantage. And that's what squeezes or keeps competition out of the market and how they keep their 99 cent Big Mac so cheap. And also, again, selling sugary beverages. So they are in multiple levels stacking the system against anybody else who might actually be producing something that would A, be healthier, which would lead to more productivity, or B, better for the environment. So that's the kind of shifting that we need. But you're right, it does start in large part with shifting policy, uh, shifting laws, and shifting incentive structures. And also mm -hmm. holding accountable those who are actually externalizing and, and closing those loopholes that exist. I mean, it's kind of crazy. As as a Canadian, when I came to the States and realized how big of a thing lobbying was, it's just, it, yeah, it's wild to be. Yeah, I mean, Canada is that famous case years ago where an organic farmer had his fields contaminated by Monsanto seeds, and he sued Monsanto for his loss of his crop that he could no longer call organic. And Monsanto mm. countersued him for using their intellectual property, their seeds on his fields, and he lost. Oh my God. I mean, this is, you can't write this stuff. This is just pure wrong. This is pure evil. And this is part of what needs to change at the center of our food system. And if we don't get the money out of politics, for instance, we're not going to be able to get the money out of corporates that are creating these unfair policies. So it does mm -hmm. come down to actually coming together and figuring out, for instance, in the United States, 99% of US government subsidies, so taxpayer money goes towards commodity crops, or even in some cases paying farmers not to grow crops. So corn, wheat, mm. and soy. Now those products, corn, wheat, and soy, have become so cheap because of these subsidies that companies, rightly so, take advantage of these cheap products to make things like Doritos. But what does that do? It displaces the stomach share, you can only eat so much, of things like fruits and vegetables. We know scientifically, from a nutrition standpoint, we're supposed to be eating in our diet 80% fruits and vegetables. Why on earth do we have policies that allow 99% of those subsidies going towards corn, wheat, and soy that we shouldn't be eating on those quantities? Wouldn't it make more logical sense to have 80% of your subsidies go towards for instance, these specialty crops, the, the vegetables and fruits that we should be eating. If, if we start to shift that type of policy in that type of direction, I think we're going to transform our entire foodscape. And then the uh, argument that could be made, I think, is that we'd be much more versatile, uh, anti-fragile from, for instance, a, a national defense standpoint. If we're much healthier, we'd be more productive. We'd be able to compete on larger scales. So I think those conversations are beginning to happen, but they're still a long way away because we still live in the petrochemical-led food system. 
Yeah, it's so true. And as you were describing, you know, how we're prioritizing these grains versus fruits and vegetables, I think from a policy standpoint, we're also not prioritizing nutrition and more so looking at how do we feed people so that they're not hungry, not how do we feed healthy people, right? Have you ever tried to eat a Dorito and chew it a hundred times? <laughs> Probably not. No. Next time you see a bag of Doritos, this is an experiment, and anybody who's listening, I'd encourage you, pick up, and, and maybe the, a, a better way to go about this, I've run this experiment before, start with, say, a, a spoonful of brown rice. You take that brown rice, and you put it in your mouth, and you chew it a hundred times. And as you chew it, it gets sweeter and sweeter, and the starches turn to sugar, and, and you eat it, and it's delicious. Do the same thing with, say, like a raisin, right? Just a simple dried grape. Chew it, it gets sweeter and sweeter, it, it's delicious, your body loves it. Then you take a Dorito and you try and do the same thing. Most people can't get past 30 chews because at that point, it's effectively nutrient void cardboard covered with salt, fat, sugar, and likely MSG. <laughs> and your body doesn't actually want it. It's saying to itself, this is not nutritious, spit it out. But mm -hmm. because we're predisposed to want salt, fat, and sugar, because historically for the hundreds of thousands, millions of years humans have been around, it's been scarce, we're predisposed to want more of it. So it's actually tricking our bodies into consuming something that is nutrient void. And as a result, our bodies say, you need more of that because you didn't get enough nutrients. So it creates that compulsive behavior, which means that we're over consuming these empty calories. And unfortunately, that's good for the bottom line if you don't have true cost accounting. Man, I would not want to chew a Dorito for a hundred chews. Although I- With friends at a party. <laughs> I did do something similar once where a friend and I competed. We had these like chocolate covered caramels and it was like a pretty hefty thing. And so I, I was like, let's see who can eat this in the most number of bites. And I think we got to like just over a hundred with like tiny, tiny little bites. Oh, anyway, it's delicious. Exactly, exactly. Um, so I guess shifting gears, looking forward into the future, I'm sure you see a ton of new startups and initiatives coming up. I'm curious how you characterize the landscape of food production and innovations today. What are the big trends you're seeing and what are the ones that you think we should be focusing on? The term that we've been talking about, I think, is one of the most critical at the moment, which is regeneration, right? And regeneration, I think, comes with uh, a few other terms, biodiversity being one of them. So in best case scenario, the world at large, I think, needs more business models that support that type of regeneration and regenerative farming. Again, best case scenario, that is not even consumer packaged goods that are processed, that is fresh fruits, vegetables, and that's within certain, let's say, watersheds. So they're not shipping it all around the world and wasting all that energy. That is sort of the, the slow food lens. And that's the romantic lens that I see the world at large. I live here in the Pacific Northwest. I live very close to my farmers. He might ring the doorbell in a few minutes and deliver, you know, his chicken and basil and all of that. And so there is the, the actual regenerative permaculture oriented polycultures. A great example of that, I think, have you seen the film, The Biggest Little Farm? Yeah, that's yeah. great. My favorite film, so romantic, 
all of your systems work together with each other. That's the way that nature is designed. That's where my heart is. That's where I, I think why we have thumbs on this planet. In my mind, this is an incredible power. And with this comes responsibility. So I think we exist here on this planet to help maintain the balance of these different polycultures. So that's number one when I look at what I want to see in the world. But number two, as you're competing with these large-scale monocultures of very cheap subsidized calories, I wouldn't even call half of them food, there's interesting new models. So for instance, you look at my farmer here has a aquaponics setup. That is a closed loop system where fish are grown in water and then the solids are filtered out and that water is used to grow plants and everything kind of comes full circle, more or less. Those are the technology enabled solutions that are not 100% nature based, but are this kind of blend between nature and technology. And I think that's where in large part the world is heading, is this blend between the two, partially because with things like climate change and uh, the natural disasters, droughts, fires, and so forth, we need to be a little bit more resilient. So one of the companies I've been working with is an indoor grow-up called Zest Farms, right? Mm. And they have very intelligently designed systems for taking fresh food and bringing it to people at an affordable price. Another really interesting example of a company I'm working with is called Every Table. Both of these are based in the LA area. And every table has a commercial centralized kitchen infrastructure for taking that fresh food from the farms. And then they have vehicles that go out delivering to their small footprint sort of restaurants. But the restaurants don't have all the overhead build out of kitchens. That's all centralized. They also have vending machines. And then they also do direct consumer drops. So a very efficient loop. And they're actually competing with the, the McDonald's of the world. But it's a technology-enabled, smarter, digitally-native model. The cool thing about that is with the restaurants and vending machines, they're really just marketing billboard, and they make all of their money from the direct-to-consumer. So it's about mm. intelligently designed business models. Then you're going to get into the, the kind of step removed, which is direction that I'm not a huge fan of, is these big processed food solutions. So the Impossible Burgers, the Beyond Burgers, at the end of the day, we're just trading one problem for another. You're taking large-scale monocultures of yellow pea or some type of legume, processing the hell out of it. In some cases, uh, impossible, actually genetically modifying the hemes or whatever to make the burger appear to bleed. And that, in my mind, is not nearly as slow food-oriented, as clean and it still has all of those costs, which are still externalized. But to give you hope, there is a company called Imlacash. We partner with them and support them. They are doing such inchi, macambo, and cacao. You might know cacao is, is chocolate. But such mm -hmm. inchi, macambo are really interesting beans, nuts out of the Amazon. And they hire female foragers and farmers that plant and forage in the understory. So they don't cut down and deforest fields. They actually grow underneath the trees. So now you have multiple living beings happening within this polyculture. And the cacao trees, for instance, need the shade of the, the upper trees. And then you can grow things underneath that even. 
So you're actually stacking the systems and they're taking such inchi, an incredibly nutritious food product, and just grinding that with some seasoning and spices and making their own chorizo, plant-based chorizo. Hmm. So it's a very simple, minimally processed whole food with some seasoning that now is mimicking and can displace things like chorizo or even some of these beyond products out there that I think are much more processed. Wow. Yeah, we just need to put a bunch more marketing dollars be- behind that product. We're on it. <laughs> it's happening. <laughs> nice. There's a term you mentioned last time, this idea of middle infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that and why that's important? Yeah, I'll give you my origin story with how I've come to that term and and a case study. So when I moved up here to the Pacific Northwest, I got connected to this entrepreneur, Kevin Morse. And Kevin had been brought in to help build a flour mill uh, up here in the Skagit Valley. It's, it's sort of like the Napa Valley of wheat. Kevin had stood up this mill and it's a small mill by regular standards. And I forget the exact statistics, but he's mentioned something around, let's say, 100 years ago or 75 years ago. It was around, don't quote me, but 22,000 flour mills in this country. And now we're down to uh, a couple hundred at most. And that's because mm-hmm. there's been massive centralization of the, the infrastructure necessary for milling flour. And Kevin wanted to build this flour mill in part so that the food miles wouldn't be so great of growing flour from, say, Washington, sending it to Kansas, getting it milled, sending it back. Uh, but also just to be more resilient and more nimble and agile. Kevin is a part of an entire food shed here in the Pacific Northwest of businesses that are built out by some really interesting folks that are helping to just make it more anti-fragile in this area. So I'll give you an example of fragility. Uh, There was that recent, I think, tornado in Tennessee or Kentucky, I can't remember which, that took out uh, a factory that makes most of the tin cans in this country. Mm. So oh, wow. with that going down, all of these other producers are affected by that. Now, if one of the major mills got taken down for whatever reason, all of these other producers are going to have this trophic cascade of negative effects in their supply chain, which is in part what we're seeing with COVID happen, that are re- really destroying their businesses. So if we have more middle infrastructure, small to medium-sized processing facilities like this one of Karen Spring Mills, now we're going to be more anti-fragile. We're going to be more nimble. We're going to be able to, let's just even say, create more jobs along the way Mm -hmm. and be in a place where we can have food that doesn't travel so far and actually, well, because of that, taste better. Definitely. And and I love that you mentioned this idea of a food shed where what you're eating, generally most of it is coming locally. Do you think that means a lot more of us need to be getting into food production work or farming? Like, do we all need to become farmers? Yeah, that's a fun question. I mean, I think films like The Biggest Little Farm, without a doubt, have inspired people to get into farming. People like Joel Salatin, without a doubt, have inspired people to get into farming. And as the medium-sized farms in this country over the last hundred years have shrunk and the the large ones have grown, so have the small ones. So do we need to? No, 
Is it a lifestyle choice to get out of the rat race of sorts, to be closer to your community, to be in service? Absolutely. You don't necessarily need to be a farmer, but knowing your farmer, knowing your fishermen, building those relationships, going to farmer's markets, those are Mm -hmm. lifestyle choices that, at least for me, they end up having dividends that go beyond just the food itself, the friendships, right? It's funny when, uh, when the pandemic hit, Karen Spring Mills, which was, you know, again, just doing small business growing, but not that fast, all of a sudden sort of became a local hero. Because as mm. you know, everybody started wanting to make sourdough bread and be more resilient. Right. Yes. And, and help them because they had so much demand for their flour. People were just pulling up, no joke, 100 cars deep buying 50 pound bags of flour, sometimes multiple, bringing them to friends and family. If people didn't have that middle infrastructure right there within their food shed, within their watershed, they wouldn't have the ability to feel safe in these uncertain times. So Mm -hmm. do you need to be a farmer? No, but know your farmer and even better, know your middle infrastructure operators. Mm-hmm. Yeah, lifestyle shift for sure. I guess on along similar lines, do you believe that good food, like real food, good quality food, should be more expensive than what we're typically paying now? Huh. Um, it absolutely shouldn't be more expensive. Uh, it is artificially expensive. Funny enough, I was having this conversation with Sam Cass, the former White House chef, because he had this idea of what if you were to double the amount of subsidies from 1% to say 2% for fruits and vegetables to incentivize farmers to grow more fruits and vegetables. And the problem is that there's lobbyists that don't want that to happen, but they're not the lobbyists you might think. Hmm. It's the large scale fruit and vegetable producers that don't want the competition from the small farms. Hmm. They have their economies of scale in place So they don't want the competition and they keep that from changing. So if we were to, again, wave a magic wand and say, let's stop subsidizing all of these commodity crops, corn, wheat, and soy, and start at very least not create an unfair advantage for the processed food manufacturers, but create a level playing field or even incentive for farmers to grow fruits and vegetables those cost savings would be passed on to consumers and we'd have a trophic cascade of sorts of positive benefits throughout in our entire our economy, our health. We'd start to see with the, the growth and consumption of, of fruits and vegetables, a lot of these chronic health challenges come down and it would create a whole lot more jobs for processing, preserving, canning, and all of that. Um, I'm just picturing like Dole bananas and sun-kissed oranges, like them sending their lobbyists out to to make sure they have a monopoly on the market. Everything is possible. Although uh, I I work with this organization called the Future Food Institute, and they've done a lot of work with Dole recently. And I think Dole is headed in the right direction as a company. Um, Mm. And and there's others too. Danone is headed in the right direction. It just takes time at the end of the day, Mm. but it takes younger generations like yourself that are expressing interests, that are sharing information, that are educating people on what the challenges and opportunities are so that we can actually be creating interesting new solutions, new businesses that actually shift us towards this transformational food system that 
is necessary to make the existing system, the old guard system, obsolete. Every little bit counts. Uh, let's see here. Did you mention Salmon Nation? I didn't, wanna... but um, okay. I, I love what you're up to. That? I've heard a lot about them, in part through this gentleman, Kevin Morse. So Salmon Nation in here in the Pacific Northwest has recognized the importance of salmon as a keystone species. So just a quick ecology lesson. In our waterways, uh, streams and rivers, many of which have been blocked over the years with dams and highways and so forth, uh, the salmon forever have swam up the riverways and laid their eggs and then they die and or get eaten up deep into these forests, sometimes all the way up in the mountains at, at the headwaters. And their bodies literally become nutrients for the trees and the plants and the animals that exist and live way deep in those forests. And that's helped put carbon in the soil, literally feeding them and then in, in the form of roots. With the, the putting in of these dams and destroying the ability for the salmon to swim up into the, the inlands, a lot of these plant species and trees have started to starve. As a result, we've started to have, in part, the, the large-scale fires that are happening in California and Washington and Oregon and beyond here on the West Coast because there isn't enough carbon and, and compost and, and organic matter in the soils because the salmon are swimming up. So Salmon Nation is a group up and down the Pacific Northwest here of folks that have recognized the critical importance of restoring those salmon habitats and those waterways so that the nutrients can begin to flow again. And they have a network of what they call ravens, and these are mm -hmm. leaders in the movement, Kevin Morris being one from Karen Springs, and others that gather and build businesses and initiatives and lobby to do things like restore the, the salmon habitat. And we see it here in Bellingham, Washington, where I live, where we have multiple construction projects happening where the culvers are being replaced on, on the highways and roads with culvers where the salmon can actually run and swim up and have ladders. The idea is that as soon as they're built, they will begin to restore their old patterns and, and pathways. It's happening slowly but surely, but those are expensive infrastructure projects. So it, it takes everybody coming together, you know, on both sides uh, of the border here to be pushing forward these initiatives. Oh, that's really cool. It's like salmon getting their own lane on the highway. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just the kind of question, do, you know, <laughs> did the, the bear cross the road or did the road cross the forest? And it's <laughs> right. very, very clear that the roads are crossing the rivers. So mm. we need to allow the salmon to run. And in part, this is long-term true cost accounting. Those problems are now being accounted for. Uh, the question, though, is who's supposed to pay for it? And we have mm. this uh, railroad that runs up and down the coast here who has caused this problem, has cut the salmon off. And in my mind, they're the ones that should be paying for it. Why are this, the shareholders of the railroad, which private, they making all of this billions and millions of dollars in profit, moving oil and coal across this country and destroying these waterways when the people in this area, and in fact, their future generations are going to be the ones that pay the price. So that's what mm -hmm. I mean that we have to have true cost accounting. And that's mm. going to take, you know, building really strong, resilient, local, political 
alliances that help move these ideas forward. And those have to be public-private partnerships. Those have to be through education in schools. And we all collectively have to come together for causes like salmonation. The reality of it is we as humans will always do what is right after exhausting every other option. <laughs> and we're feeling the pain with these fires, with these large-scale storms, with uh, climate change that is unpredictable because of the lack of nutrients that are in the soil, because of the droughts that have come, because these, for instance, salmon haven't been able to run. And this has only been in, in a matter of decades that this has happened. So the real question is, can we restore it fast enough in time? And I think that's where mm -hmm. the, the hedge comes with things like these indoor ag farms is we mm. know people are going to be moving towards cities and, and that it's efficient to have humans in cities, but we also have to have kind of backup systems in place if, if we have major droughts, major fires that disrupt the actual romantic farming practices. And also not every climate's conducive to fruits and vegetables, right? <laughs> so in the Northeast, we're not going to be able to have tomatoes in the middle of winter. So having those yeah. indoor farms is crucial. Yeah, that or honestly shifting your preferences and diets. There is no need to be eating a tomato in the middle of winter. In fact, <laughs> if you want to follow that food shed, that tomato, it goes in most cases down to Immokalee, Florida. And Immokalee, I learned about many years ago through the coalition of Immokalee workers that was exposing modern day slavery. That still exists mm -hmm. in tomato farms. So... McDonald's, who's buying their tomatoes to put on the Big Macs, and the people that are supporting buying the Big Macs are in turn responsible for the slavery that's happening down in these fields. So mm. if we had true cost accounting, better incentive structures, better oversight, more access to affordable nutrition, we'd be getting to the root cause, I think, of a lot of these issues. So there's a lot of issues that we need to pay attention to. For listeners who might be feeling a little overwhelmed or like, oh my gosh, there's so many things I need to I need to reshift my whole diet, like shift where I'm buying food from. What would be like one simple step you would suggest? I think the most important thing to shift is our perspective, right? Mm. It's not that you have to or you need to, it's that you get to. Right. Mm. Oh, I get to eat a salad. I get to choose water over a sugary beverage. And if you can begin to shift your mindset over these types of things, you're going to be able to start to shift your inner voice and then your words and then your actions. So start by shifting your mindset of this is an opportunity. It's an experiment. It's actually a pleasure. It's a joy to be able to slow down, make a salad, drink water, whatever it may be, and then share that with people. Like, I will go out of my way to make somebody else's salad. Whereas I might not have the, the fortitude in the moment to make myself a salad. I might want to make a, <laughs> a choice that's different. But if you decide you're going to have people over, do it for a loved one or a friend, then all of a sudden it's easier to make that decision. And then they feel nourished from it. And then you feel nourished from the friendship. And then you're also mm. eating a salad or, you know, doing something that's healthier. So I, I feel like that's probably the critical first step is shift your perspective. And then don't forget that you're a houseplant with emotions. Get outside. <laughs> you're gonna have sunlight. Move around. 
So th- those little things, I mean, the end of the day, so many of us are still living in our reptilian brains. We're, we're animals. So be kind and compassionate to yourself. Don't give yourself more problems to deal with by kicking yourself. If you decide to eat Cheetos, enjoy those dang Cheetos, right? Just don't mm-hmm. eat every day, you know? Yeah. I'm, I'm no angel myself, but gosh, if we can all just incrementally change collectively, we'll shift markets, right? Just don't support the businesses like, for instance, Coca-Cola. Don't mm-hmm. give them your money. Vote with your wallets. Go to the farmer's market. Support that person that's out there making a jun or a kombucha or or a ginger beer that is entrepreneurial. Say hi to them, make friends, you know, ask them about their kids or their dreams or whatever it may be. Like there's so much more to nutrition than just food and water. It's mm-hmm. making friends, you know, talking about these things, feeling inspired. I love that. We're all house plants with emotions. <laughs> But it's so true. I do notice when I'm cooking for other people, I put so much more intention into the meal. Whereas if I'm just home alone, I'm like, mm, I mean, just mm-hmm. heat up a pizza. <laughs> you know? yeah, just be kind to yourself and kind to others and everything else starts to fall into place. Mm, love it. Well, that's a great stopping point. Thank you so much for sharing all your wisdom and, and your stories today. If folks are interested in learning more about you and your work, where can they find you? Yeah. Um, thanks for having me. I'm yeah. chefTimWest.com on Instagram, um, on Facebook. I'm pretty easy to find. You just Google Chef Tim West. And uh, also Sundial.Foundation is our nonprofit. We're trying to get to the root of some of these issues by supporting female-led, people of color-led, indigenous-led, for-profit ventures, what we call the, the four E's around equity, education, employment, and the environment. So take a look at that. If you're aligned with those interests, shoot us a message and happy to talk about ways to collaborating and building this food system we all know is possible. And that we shall do. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Jane. Real pleasure. And that's a wrap. Thank you so much for tuning in. Remember to nourish your body and I'll talk to you next time.